Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Heidi. And today we'll be discussing Chapter 9, The Gate. Together! Woohoo! Today's coffee, I am drinking a... I'm drinking Starbucks Dark Roast. Again, like I said, I like me a dark roast. But I'm drinking it from... The absolute coolest Nightmare Before Christmas mug that I got from Moonlit Wonderland on Etsy. One word, Moonlit Wonderland. I don't know. I love it. It's so cool. The picture of it, it's hard to describe, but it's sort of like in the style of those like fake, fake products that you see like from different fandoms. And uh, yeah, it says Jingle Juice on it with Jack holding a steaming mug of, of I presume, some, some twisted version of hot chocolate and a candy cane sticking out of it. It's just, it's really, really cool. So I'll, I'll, the picture of it will definitely be on the Instagram. I am drinking Dunkin' Decaf, uh, and I am drinking it from a, like, 90s-style tall Christmas coffee mug. Um, it's got, like, a drawing of a reindeer with ornaments hanging off of its antlers. And now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. As promised, Heidi has returned. I am here. As as we said back when we did our announcement, you've been watching the episodes with me. Yeah. So you're all up to speed. The I mean, it, it commences with the actual reunion between Mike and Eleven. Yeah. We got the tease of it at the end of chapter eight, but then it's a very soft fade in, and the first thing you see is them embracing. And I, I don't know about you, but I, lo- I love this reunion. I love it so much. It's so beautifully done. Yeah, and you know, I think it's actually pretty brave to cut that reunion in half between episodes. I think a more traditional way to edit that might have been like to have the door open and we see her face and then and then nothing else and then it just drops. To have like her walk in and have everybody react to her and then cut and then open again in the same moment without necessarily making it feel like like the moment is broken in either episode is pretty impressive. It feels more like a broadcast TV move in that, like, because can you imagine watching that when you didn't have the next chapter nine to immediately start right away Mm. by giving us the slow walk in, they see each other. Mike smiles, which might be one of the first times I think he has smiled all season. Yeah. Back a few, a number of episodes ago, towards the beginning, I gave Sadie Sink some props for her being able to ask about what was wrong with Will without it sounding accusatory or Mm -hmm. like too like inappropriately interested, you know, like morbidly curious and also not being like too concerned for her level of like, you know, very similarly here, the way that Mike is able to ask, why didn't you say anything Mm -hmm. without it sounding accusatory? Yeah. That, oh man, to thread that needle, that's hard. And I I would not be surprised if that was also like, that he was directed to do, to deliver it in that way, but still he had to actually do it. Sure. And the fact that he's been so angry all season to like see this gentler side of him I was like that's super well done yeah I think what helps in that in that moment is she knows the number of days and he can see that she's been counting and he can also see that she is just as affected by this moment as he is there's so much nonverbal communication going on mm-hmm. and like you know the mu for for us as an audience the music is doing some of the lifting but not that much 
it's a big, 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 big moment, but you've been building to it piece by piece by piece all season. So it's, it's earned. I like, too, that we get the cutaway to Max asking if that's Eleven, mm -hmm. which it not only sets up for future interactions, so we're not left wondering, well, I guess Max assumes one or the, you know, like, I guess she assumes one or the other of the boys clued her in. Yeah. And it allows us a moment to see Lucas and Dustin's shock at seeing her, too. And I want to circle back to that in a minute, you know, to their reactions once we get to their hug, because though they weren't as scarred as Mike was they did watch her die too or thought they did so their shock is very very real and of course <laughs> this moment is interrupted when hopper interjects and he and l have their reunion and it's curt but it's heartfelt and i like that the where have you been where have you been mm -hmm. exchange it feels gruff and it feels in character for both of them yeah but that that emotion and that relief at seeing one another is there which is made evident by their action which is him hugging her. Right. And I said this at the end of the Mind Flayer, but I, I want to reiterate that I like that this mo this reunion between Mike and Elle gets to be the focus, mm -hmm. even here. Like, the, the reunion between Elle and Hopper, it's there, but he's known all season that she's alive. Mike doesn't. Right. So I, I'm really appreciative that they allowed space to really let us have this emotional catharsis between these two. Mm -hmm. I love Max's reaction because she's sort of in awe, she gets a really great introduction to Elle because she sees what she can do immediately. So there's no like, can she, can't she, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, she sees the, the bond between her and Mike. So it is very natural for her to just have this conclusion of like, is that? And they're like, yeah. But after, or I think while Elle and Hopper are hugging, that's when Mike says, kind of puts the pieces together. You've been hiding her. Hop says, let's talk alone. Elle kind of looks a little nervous or a little un uncomfortable when they step aside. As you Mike... do when your dad and your boyfriend are yeah. about to come to blows. <laughs> and Mike proceeds to freak out on Hopper. Yeah. Everything about this scene between them is amazing. From Hopper knowing instantly to move to another room. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, intuitively knowing, knowing we have to, we have, let's take this, that Mike does deserve to talk, but it should be in private to Mike's overwhelming anger, to Hopper taking all of Mike's rage, to Mike collapsing into crying and Hopper's final apology. It doesn't feel like Hopper is speaking down to him at all. Hopper isn't perfect with addressing Mike either. Like he, he starts defensive mm -hmm. and like logical, but he also meets Mike's anger and takes the blame immediately mm -hmm. i don't know i think i think that hop is upset about it all too and judging by the, the break in his voice when he says that's okay kid that's okay yeah when i watched that scene i wish hopper had been with l the way he is with mike that is the kind of reaction and the kind of role modeling and the kind of like just emotional awareness that mike and L have both needed. But at the same time, you know, I think it would be easy, especially from a feminist lens, to be like, oh, well, he gets it when he sees what Mike needs, but he doesn't get it when he sees what L needs because reasons. But I also think that there's a little bit at play here of Hopper is learning 
from the mistakes that he made with Elle. And that's not to take away, like, I do think that there's some really interesting stuff going on with, like, a feminist reading of Hopper and Elle's relationship, especially earlier on in the season, because he's basically turning her into a princess in the tower. She doesn't deserve that. But I think he's learning that she doesn't deserve that. It's not actually going to keep her safe, and it's actually a disservice to her. But yeah, I absolutely love the you be mad at me, but don't be mad at her. And, and he's like, I'm not mad at her. I couldn't like, because Mike intuits what happened immediately. Well, and also Hopper apologizes in this scene. He didn't apologize before and yeah. he knew that he needed to. And so he does, he apologizes. And I think also like the apology struck me different this time than it ever has before. I think it is Hopper apologizing for, for his role and his choices and what, what's happened. But I also think he's just, there's also a bit in there of like, I'm sorry that you're hurting. Yeah. And I really, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think he absolutely has learned from what happened with Elle. He saw how much that really didn't work. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. Yeah. But the thing I really want to make sure that I that I say about this exchange, this scene, and what happens to Mike in this moment that I really wish was, I guess, more evident to more people is that this is an emotional release for Mike. Him finally just letting himself experience all of the hurt, all of the grief, everything he's been holding on to all year. It's like it's she's she's okay, she's safe, she's alive. I can finally like actually let myself feel this yeah and the survivor's guilt as well yeah because you know from mike's perspective she died saving him that that's a lot that is a lot for adults to cope with that is quite a burden for a preteen to be carrying mm -hmm. yeah it just it feels surprisingly like emotionally insightful mm -hmm. but we cut out of that into the l dustin and lucas hug and yes, yes, it is a refund recreation of or a nod to the hug that follows that she's in our fr she's our friend and she's, she's crazy, crazy. <laughs> from season one. But what I love about it is that Lucas gets to be here for this yeah. one because that happened in season one before they had Reunited. had yeah, yeah exactly. And it's a nice bookend to you know our noting of the she doesn't call out to them as well as Mike. She does get to have a moment with just them. Mm-hmm. And then we get Max and Elle's introduction. Oh my god. No. No. I hate it. No. I must disrespectfully decline. I get her feeling jealous in the moment when she saw Max interacting with Mike. Um, I'm not saying that, like, that was a good or healthy or, you know, well-adjusted place to be, but I, I get it. I, I genuinely don't get it in this scene because they've just had this incredibly emotional reunion she can see how he feels she has been hearing him calling out to her now i do think that l has a little bit of stunted emotional growth because of the environment that she was raised in and even once she left the lab because of the environment that she was raised in under hopper which is just like total isolation so i can see her being a little weird with Max, I could almost see her being like, yeah, great. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> my script doctor approach to it would be to that she kind of looks sort of not unlike the way that she reacts to Dustin, like you have teeth, like mm -hmm. just kind of awkward, yeah. like in the way that we've seen her be like then in other places. But then she just gets distracted by Joyce. Yeah. Like so she sees Joyce. Yeah. I mean, I think this this is definitely a scene that screams written by a dude. Because I can I can hear somebody being like, ha, ha, cat fight. 
what it screams to me is that they they didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. they did they were like we'll just have uh, like uh, like what do we do with this interaction and i don't think they wanted to spend a lot of time on it so they didn't to me something that i like kind of have been tracking is like l's sort of like forward 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 towards darker 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 but she's been she's had her experience with Kali. she's realized i don't want to go down that road Mm -hmm. she's pulled back she's come back to hawkins to me that feels regressive and even like joyce would watch l intentionally be shitty to another kid and not say anything it's a little odd to me that joyce that max steps forward before joyce does but Joyce and Elle do have their reunion, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's really, really wonderful. And it's, I like that it's that it's Elle that asks about Will. Mm-hmm. Joyce is like, hey, I'm just happy to see you, mm-hmm. you know. That's, and she calls her sweetie, mm-hmm. which is so nice. Mm-hmm. After she sees Will, that's when Joyce asks, if we can get you back to the lab, you know, you opened this gate. If we get you back there, can you close it? Elle doesn't answer, but we get, we cut full shot of the gate and the Temadogs guarding it, establishing just how horrible the odds are. And then we get the title sequence. Jesus, all of that was before the title sequence. Yes, it's a long cold open. Yeah. I don't think it's the longest, mm-hmm. but it definitely is one of the, I would say, one of the weightiest. Yeah. But out of the title sequence, we land in a candlelit bathroom. Karen Wheeler is in a bubble bath, reading a romance novel, listening to Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were. The doorbell rings, repeatedly, like a lot. And since Ted is passed out in the living room, Karen has to scramble out of the tub to answer the door, where Billy is waiting, looking pretty much just like the Adonis on the cover of her book. (laughs) And he turns on the charm as Donna Summers' I Do Believe I Fell in Love plays. I remember the first time I watched this sequence... I was like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Is this going to get weird and gross and and really, really weird? What are we doing? What are we doing? And they didn't go there. Mm -hmm. Now I can find it amusing. Yeah, I find myself in a sort of like Karen Wheeler apologist role when it comes to this scene. Reading a romance novel, listening to some music, lighting some candles. In 2021, we call that Mm self-care. You know, so she's just like, she's just taking a moment. She's just relaxing, having a nice time, having a relaxing bubble bath. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, given how stressful we have seen her life is, I think our girl has earned it. Absolutely. No argument. And I do actually think that there's a kind of like relatability or common experience to like you know mom takes care of everything and she just wants to take a bubble bath but of course the second that she tries to relax something explodes and she's got to like she's got to interrupt her moment of self-care and go take care of it and there's also humor in the like how do you not hear the doorbell over and over and over I feel like everybody has had an experience like that. Do you not hear the phone? Do you not hear the doorbell? Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. The microwave is beeping Mm -hmm. (laughs) or something. Mm -hmm. So I definitely did have a different reaction to the sequence between her and Billy in this episode. Watching it now than watching the first time. The first time I was also very uncomfortable. Billy is very easily able to charm her into giving away information that she should not be giving away mm-hmm. because she's actively putting all of the kids in danger by helping Billy find them. She doesn't know that. Yes. And I felt a little bit like the scene might be framed so as to like judge her 
for falling for Billy's charm. And now when I watch it, I don't feel that way. You know, she was just having her like, you know, having her relaxing moment. And she rushed down and was not expecting to see she wasn't, I don't think she was even expecting to see someone she doesn't know. She was probably expecting to, like, that Mike had forgot his key or something. Mm -hmm. You know, because she looks really shocked when it's someone she doesn't know and when it's, you know. The guy on the cover. I mean, literally, like, and apparently that is a real romance novel. Oh, yeah. I recognize the, uh, that, that style of cover is called a clinch cover. And it was all the rage from, like, the 70s through the 90s. Yeah. Well, I mean, I assumed that they like took the style and then like fab oh. fabricated you know like made one up like no. just, just for like licensing reasons or yeah. whatever you know kind of like i don't know like a fake cereal or something and mm -hmm. but just to like yeah f you know fake but no apparently it's an it, that's an actual factual book they really make sure that you see the cover <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in that slow dolly shot like up to her in the bath mm -hmm. but I, d I definitely think that the creep factor is on billy's end but i think that billy is either a narcissist or has very narcissist tendencies because one one trait of of someone who is a narcissist is to be able to read people incredibly well and to mirror them back which is how they make people like them you know she comes to the door in like sexy housewife with sexy housewife energy and he's like oh sexy housewife energy you got it. Mm -hmm. And gives that right back to her. And like, because of the way that Billy is acting, I don't blame her for being like flustered and charmed. Oh, yeah, me neither. I think it's that much more like sinister that he is able to just like, with a snap of a finger, turn on that flirtatiousness and know exactly what she needs to hear so that he can get what he wants from her. He also says things like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm worried sick about her. No, the fuck he's not. In last episode, when he's like, she's 13, she just went and like is hanging out with her friends or something. He's actually justified in not being super worried about her. I also, I just think it's really, really interesting that he consistently refers to her as his sister and talks about how worried he should be about her, which he is about her, which is what his father said he should be mm -hmm. saying and feeling in the previous episode. I think that the masking that Billy does for different audiences is both really interesting and sad because it's definitely an indication of how much emotional abuse he has suffered because he develops those skills in order to deal with his home environment. When she, when she says to him, you must be here for Nancy, and he says, Nancy, no, not my type. I read that as... No, I'm I'm not I'm not into girls. But I think what they chose to like retcon that to mean, the I guess technically canon explanation is that I'm interested in women, not girls. There's a lot to unpack in that line. There's the I don't actually like girls, there's the I don't like girls my own age, and there's also the I don't like girls that would one hundred percent call me on my shit immediately. This is yet another example of interactions that I would have been really interested to see because we never see Billy and Nancy interact. Oh my gosh, she would turn him upside down and <laughs> mop the floor with his hair. Which, I mean... I'm here for it. Billy also says, though, in this exchange, he says he's... He said he went to the Sinclairs already. Mm -hmm. And like, yikes. Well, yikes and. I am not suggesting 
that Billy is a forward-thinking individual mm-hmm. when it comes to race. I'm He's 100% racist. However, we have seen how good he is at masking. So it is also entirely possible that he rocked up to the Sinclair's front door, like, he's gonna know they're black. And he knocks on the door and either Mr. or Mrs. Sinclair answers it. And he's like, oh, I'm looking for my sister. <laughs> you know, and and they're just like, yeah, she ain't here. Spot on impression, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> David Montgomery, I apologize. <laughs> that's just that's what you think of his performance, apparently. Not Montgomery's, Billy's. Yeah. Dagger Montgomery is playing Billy, who is playing a decent person. Yes. Oh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that he was able to turn on turn on the charm and internalize the racism. And, you know, and probably that is what's fueling part of his anger is, Ooh, you know, yeah. that first of all, he ridiculously, he told her not to not to associate with Lucas. But he's like, I already told her not to associate with Lucas. Now I have to go to these people's houses and see if she's there when I told her that she shouldn't even be hanging out with him. And, you know, people who are that racist don't want to be seen going to a black person's house. So he's probably pissed off about that. And yeah, like I I can very much see him being able to turn on the charm. Now, I think it would be interesting to see whether or not the Sinclairs would see through that a little bit more easily than Karen did, because he's not going to be turning on, like, the seductive charm with them. Again, that's not the energy that they're going to be greeting him with. But I wonder, in fact, I kind of have to think that if they had shot that scene, that they would have been like, no. Yeah, and I wonder if that's partly why we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Because it is kind of, it's almost a throwaway line. Like, I kind of think it's only in the scene, A, because you're caught up in the middle of him basically quasi-seducing Karen. Yeah. And also because there's a there's this moment of, like, I, I think there might have been a, like, how do we circle that square? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we actually, or, or thread the needle might be a better way to put it. Because it's, like, how do we actually manage to accomplish all of all of that? It's, it's, too, it's too much to try to do in the season finale. Yeah. And they were already at an episode more than last season. Sure. And that's the and, and at the end of that scene, that's when Karen gives him directions to the to the buyer's house. And after some more flirting, she watches him leave just like the high school girls did. Like there's even the same shot where it's like a little bit angled down. Yeah, and he not only immediately turns off like the charm and like the emotional aspect, like it's not funny, but it's it's like hilarious, like in a mean way that she says like hey it's really dark out there she's probably thinking about like i would think about deer um she's like so drive slow and he's like always but back at the buyers they're all yet again rallied around the kitchen table where they try to make a new plan and uh dustin officially introduces the term demodogs for the first time into the speaks it into the canon and i I love the how is this relevant right now it's not i'm sorry (laughs) Yet later, he's going to insist, damn it, dogs. Mm-hmm. Like, Elle asserts that she can close the gate, but Mike and Lucas together deduce that Will is a part of the hive mind. And so closing the gate will kill him. Joyce, mostly, along with Jonathan, Mike, and Dustin, figure out that they have to burn it out of him. Burn the mind flare out of him. Like a fever, kind of. Fight your instincts in the way that, that, you know, Will has been like, no, he likes it cold. And... 
um, Joyce is like, not today, motherfucker. Also, if I may, Max and Steve stand in the back in the doorway because they're both separate from these relationships and this conversation and this knowledge and this part of the story, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Joyce, Jonathan, and Will load up, preparing to depart for Hopper's cabin. Meanwhile, Steve and Nancy scope through the junk in the backyard, I guess, for space heaters. Everything that they tossed out of the shed in prepping to make it a, you know, an interrogation room. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I finally understand where that pile of stuff comes. And that explains why, then, we get the nod to season one where Steve holds up the Christmas lights, Mm -hmm. which I liked even not knowing what that like where it all came from i was like i don't care it's a reference to season one it's cool (laughs) yeah well i mean like if you kind of aren't thinking of that it's like how is how are all those it's like how is all that equipment even still functional like hasn't it been rained on and whatnot (laughs) like no it's only been outside for like an hour yeah steve says that nancy should go with jonathan and nancy tries to go no i don't want to leave mike to which he says that he's sticking around Mm -hmm. no one's leaving anyone and we get the now famous line, I may be a pretty shitty boyfriend, but it turns out I'm actually a damn pretty damn good babysitter. Which I got even one more level deep insight with this line than I ever have before. Because you pointed out the thing last episode when we were watching it about how Billy saying Max doesn't need a full-time babysitter. Steve, Billy is rejecting this role. Mm-hmm. And Steve is like actually kind of embracing it. I just think that's an interesting parallel. And... I've, I've kind of gone kind of six rounds with that exchange because I used to hate that line. I used to really hate that he says, not the damn good babysitter part, the shitty boyfriend part. Hmm. Based on our conversations over the course of season one, over the course of this season, I have to admit that like maybe that's referring to like his decision at the party, which... Ditching, yeah. I mean, I think the shitty boyfriend is referring to pressuring her into... Um, going to the party when she was clearly not up for going out and socializing and for not understanding her need to go to Barb's parents. and Yes, and I, I hear that. But I also think that, like, you know, you said it best last season. She and Jonathan get each other on a level that she and Steve just were never going to. Yeah. It was just a case of, like, we like Steve, we just don't love Steve. Mm-hmm. Like, Murray's analysis is pretty spot on. Yeah. So I think it's like, yeah, he's made some mistakes. But I also think it just wasn't, a, it's just... It's just not a good match. And I think that's ultimately where he's coming from in this scene. And I also kind of like that they linger on her being alone in the frame. I don't know, it's it's not a lot, but I, I like it because I think it actually kind of shows... Yeah, I, like, I have no doubt she's meant to be with Jonathan at this point. And she wants to be with Jonathan. But I do think it's kind of just a nice little touch because it's like, yeah, but by being with Jonathan, you do kind of, you lose something with Steve. Right. And I think that may have been an editing choice. Mm-hmm. Then we get a much more emotional farewell between Mike and Eleven. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels kind of like an inverse of the typical setup. Like, she's the hero having to go off into battle. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who has to sit by and say, be careful, I love you. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, uh, and with that, both parties are off. Then we get the, the really emotional scene between Hop and Eleven in the yeah. car. She fills Hopper in on where she went, and he proceeds to apologize and open up about why he's done the things that he's done, that he feels like a black hole. And then he tells her about Sarah. I theorized that Kali being so open and so candid, to a degree, about 
what she'd been through, like offering like open emotional, like sisterly, like familial connection and being more vulnerable with Elle. Hopper really hasn't done that with her. Yeah. It's been very gruff. It's been very curt. He's been very closed off until he made that call on the radio. Then to have her come back, she's made the choice that like, well, even if he's not going to be that, I'm still going to go back. But then she gets it here and she gets to see like, yeah, you're in a lot of pain too. Mm-hmm. It's a really good moment of reconciliation. But back at the buyers, Dustin clears out the fridge to make way for the dead Demodog. God. <laughs> this child. But I like, oh, uh, I mean, I've talked about it before, like the, the sort of repartee between characters. Like, this is no exception. Like the fact that you get the like, okay, go ahead. And then the like pan over to Steve going, is this really necessary? And the fact that Dustin responds immediately. Yes, it is. This is an important discovery, and we cannot let it go. And then, all right, but you're explaining this to Mrs. Byers. <laughs> and then the struggle and, like, the door, dude, the door. Like, oh, yeah, everything. I mean, I don't know how much of this was improv but it feels so natural. It mm-hmm. does not feel scripted. It does not feel directed. It does not feel staged. It's a great. It's also disgusting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think also part of what sells it as a moment is because you, as an audience member, 100% believe and understand and even support both reactions, even though they're diametrically opposed, you know, because Dustin is 100% right. Like, if he, like, if he studies one of these demodogs and figures out what it is, he could be winning, like, a Nobel Peace Prize and everything else. Meanwhile, you know. Yeah, like, they don't understand the upside down. And this, into Dustin's point from last episode, this is a big problem. Yeah. And the lab's clearly not doing yeah, they're, much. Yeah, they're insufficient. It's like, we, we have a chance, we have a corpse, we need to do an autopsy. That's, like, so he's definitely not wrong, but it's yeah. it's also, like, sorry, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's not the weirdest thing that Joyce has found in her fridge. Certainly not after the events of last season. Yeah. The most disruptive, maybe, but not the most surprising. The rest of the group, though, are cleaning up, at least Max and Lucas are, cleaning up the mess in the living room while Mike paces. And they wind up concocting a plan to help Eleven and Hopper by creating a diversion peppered by Steve's objections. So, okay, here's my question about a plot hole that may not be a plot hole. Okay. We have figured out that Will is connected to the Mind Flayer and to the Demodogs, and that to hurt them hurts Will. Yes. And we've said, okay, so before we close the gate... We have to disinfect Will, for want of a better term. So how does it not also register that hurting the tunnels in order to draw the demodogs away will also hurt Will? That is a really good point. I think they're aware that it's going to hurt Will, but I think that that... I mean, they don't, they don't say that. They don't say that in so many words in the scene. But I think that's sort of... Honestly, it's really no different than what Joyce, Jonathan, and Nancy are going to do. They're burning it out of him. So if the host is no longer hospitable, Mm -hmm. it will still leave. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think think you've made a pretty astute observation of the fact that, like, but those two things at the same time... Well, and we saw his reaction to when the vines were burned. Yes. So I think that actually, you're, you're right, I think that may be a plot hole. I mean... I can kind of hand wave it by saying they assume that Will will already be, again, like, disinfected by the time they get to the hub. 
I don't, but you know, but there's, there's no textual support for that. So that's, that's just a like, I don't want to think about that. So this is what I'm, I'm deciding. Like Will's physical person was actually fine. Mm -hmm. It was all in his head. But I think then you're getting into the like, but if you die in the matrix, you die here kind of thing. So I I don't know. That's, that's, that would be a question for the Duffers. Mm. Uh, Steve though himself interrupts the plan making fully and puts his foot down. I promise I'd keep you shithead safe, and that's exactly what I plan to do. <laughs> the kids seem to, however annoyed, lose their enthusiasm at that point, because yeah. they're, like, on a roll, and then he go, he does the, hey, hey, hey. I need a yes. But they don't actually agree to not do no. it. No. Yeah. Because that's when Billy arrives, and Max says, he can't know I'm here. He'll kill me. He'll kill us. And we cut to Steve right after that, and I wonder if this is actually the first time that steve puts it together that max is billy's sister i kind of like maybe but i also kind of read it as this is one of the first times that steve is realizing that like billy is dangerous like he's not just a pain in the ass Mm -hmm. he's a threat and i think that that realization continues to set in over the course of what follows Mm -hmm. so he goes out there to, to turn billy away and i actually think that Steve sells this really well. It's the kids, le- you know, leering in the window that gives it away. I'm like, if they hadn't done that, mm-hmm. Billy would have no ground. I mean, he might have gone in anyway. It's probably pointless to say that. But I think it's also key to note that Billy doesn't really assure Steve is down bef- for the count before he goes into the house. That So that exchange, that part of the fight, if we, if we take like the whole thing as a singular fight. Mm-hmm. I think that was just about, like, get out of my way. Mm-hmm. Like, he was not coming from a place of wanting to really inflict a lot of damage on Steve. That was about humiliating him. Now, granted, he wanted to hurt Steve because if he didn't want to hurt him, he would just shove him and walk by. But that was about, like, overpowering him, especially with the comment, like, I told you to plant your feet. Mm-hmm. That was about dominance. I think there's also room for reading it that I don't think he expected Steve to get back up. No. And why? Are the kids just hanging out in the house oh, when he comes in? Why are they not hiding? I know. Why didn't they sneak out the back door? I like, don't know, dude. Like, I know kids can be stupid sometimes, but these are not stupid children. These are strategic kids. I find it really hard to believe that both Max and Lucas would be looking out the window when Max knows how much of a threat Billy is, especially how much of a threat he is to Lucas. I feel like at the very least, now granted, like they have to be there so that Billy can see them so that the, the scene can proceed. But I really feel like Max would say like, Lucas, you gotta go. Buddy, you gotta go. Go hide in the shed. You cannot be here. And that's something that like they could have easily done, like where they're just getting out through the kitchen and Billy just catches up to them. Like, I I feel like that's easy enough to do. Or like, yeah, Lucas isn't there. Or I don't know. Like, it just seems like they it seems like they could have blocked it differently and it would have worked better. Yeah. Billy does come in and pins Lucas to the wall. Lucas gets a kick in, though. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's really, really interesting that Billy definitely expects that interaction to go differently. Mm -hmm. And I also, I think it's very interesting and worth noting that Billy says to Max, what happens when you just, I break things and then goes to Lucas? Because again, he is, he's not a nice guy, but he's not stupid. He, he can, he intuits, he knows that 
um, her relationship with Lucas is very meaningful to her. He knows that she wants to protect him, so he deliberately targets Lucas. I mean, I also think that he probably feels less guilt attacking Lucas because Lucas is black. But the real crux of it is because Max cares about him. And I think it would be reasonable to expect a kid Lucas's age to just be like, blah, and, and to like break down and be really, really scared. But Lucas is just not, not today, which is very much in keeping with how Lucas has been the entire time we've known him. I mean, he faced down a Demogorgon with a wrist rocket and like did not think twice about it. He is not a guy who's going to cave and be intimidated by Billy. Him getting that one kick in, it does make Billy back up, but it only seems to kind of piss him off. Yeah, he poked the bear a bit. Yeah, and he, so Billy says, you know, you're dead, Sinclair. As the fight progresses with Steve, which Steve is okay after everything that Billy does to him. I would say that he's he is expecting or planning to do to Lucas at least what he was expecting to do to Steve. But within the kind of universe logic, he's, he's not going to die. He's just going to have the shit kicked out of him. Well, except that the only reason, I mean, again, using the in-universe logic, because I kept a, I kept a tally of like the, the injuries that Billy does to Steve. The only reason that's, that Steve is not dead is because Max interferes. Mm -hmm. So if no one had, if Steve hadn't come in at this moment and turned the fight towards him, I think the fight really, really, really escalates. And I think Billy's mental state deteriorates very severely throughout the course of his fight with Steve. I'm not defending yeah, Billy. No. <laughs> um, but there is so much trauma and rage and unworked through stuff that Steve is just triggering over and over and over by undercutting Billy's power because he he does that repeatedly throughout again if we take this as a big one long fight Billy continually tries to be like tries to intimidate tries to, he's doing the things that he has done with everyone else he's he's wearing a the like mask and and Steve is just not being a uh, cooperative audience member if you will and that just like really really rattles Billy very very deeply and then he gets his attention redirected toward seeing the kids and you know directs his attention towards Lucas but then he's in the middle of doing his like I'm the big bad wolf and Steve comes along and undercuts him and you know breaks his moment of power again I think a lot of the hatred towards Steve is he's supplanting his father onto Steve mm. I also I don't I <sighs> You know, I respect the statements. I think they, there's a lot of homoeroticism happening here that you just can't reasonably turn a blind eye to. And I think that, you know, the reason that he's attacking Steve the way that he is is because because Billy hates himself and because Billy hates Steve for the way that he feels about Steve. And he also can tell that his feelings are completely unreciprocated, which only further enrages him. Because then when Steve reappears, he gets a he gets a hit in. Mm -hmm. And at first, Billy's like, finally, King Steve. Yeah. Like, all right, let's do this. And Steve is just like, no, leave. Yeah. He doesn't want to even engage. Yeah. The one thing that's like even like 
acceptable right. interaction. Steve's like, I don't want it. Yeah. Just go. Mm-hmm. And he's choosing the kids. He's defending the kids. Yeah. Billy sort of was what Steve was going to be originally. I think it's fascinating, like, how the, these two characters then end up fighting each other and how you kind of get to see sort of, you know, weirdly, like, I don't know if this is the best comparison, but kind of Valjean and Javert mm-hmm. almost. Like, you have two people who are kind of faced with a lot of the same stuff. I mean, I don't mean, like, their family background and whatnot, but, like, you have the, these two that were sort of meant to be kind of they started in the same place and then they've their paths went in very mm-hmm. different directions but they end up facing off like it ends up in this this confrontation between these between these two but it's a it's surrounding the kids right like they didn't plan on the Steve Dustin bond mm-hmm. them seeing that and implementing that i think ends up being like this really fascinating blend of predetermined intention Mm -hmm. and then also using what naturally evolved on its own Mm -hmm. and then them putting that into this finale especially considering that again again none of this has anything to do with the lab or the mind flayer or the demogorgon this is all real world conflict and i like that yeah get out he says and like just kind of nudges billy like And then Billy, like, waits a second and then takes a swing. Steve ducks and gets a second hit in. Comparatively. (laughs) Billy shoves Steve down and kicks him in the stomach before he goes into the house. Billy breaks the plate over Steve's head. Billy headbutts Steve. And then Billy just wails on Steve once he's down. He hits him in the face at least ten times. Uh, Yeah. Steve's dead. Concussion, internal bleeding. Like... But anyway, instead of continuing to yell along with the others, Max takes up the syringe and pulls a rogue-style sneak attack. She's the rogue. Zoomer is her subclass. (laughs) Yes, I like that. And then she takes up Steve's bat and demands that Billy leave her and her friends alone from now on. And when he says, screw you, she slams the bat into the floor between his legs as a threat. And uh, I like the symmetry of this, too, because Steve jumped in front of her with the bat in the school bus mm-hmm. to fight the Demodog, and he took on Billy, for, you know, here. But here she gets to save him, even using his weapon. Yeah. I like that it's Max who ends the fight, but puts energy into her her agency. It gives her, like, a kind of light at the end of the tunnel for everything that she's going through with Billy. And I kind of think, I think it's kind of interesting in sort of like detective fiction and pop culture, um, there's this dark, very dark joke that like poison is a woman's weapon because it can be administered without a whole lot of physical strength. And also because women typically are the ones who are preparing the food and so on. So this isn't poison, it's a sedative, but... It doesn't require any physical strength. It doesn't require that she, like, knock him down or whatever. She is able to just, like, sneak up right behind him and just administer this knockout drug. So I like that she has this sort of more feminine approach to fighting. And then she takes up a fucking spiked bat and, like, whams it down, like, right next to his dick and was like, I need you to tell me that you understand, which is a very, very aggressive, much more, quote unquote, because, like, you know, gender is bullshit but a more masculine approach to fighting it's very physical it's very physically intimidating and it's threatening him on a very like masculine level threatening your manhood right on a number of levels 
Yeah, and emotionally and physically, which I think is is really, really interesting. So, you know, I think that is what makes him able or forced to concede. It really is such so rewarding to have it be like her go, I've had about enough of you. Mm-hmm. All of the guys, it's been all this like aggression and physical altercations there's all this there's all this punching there's all this hitting there's kicking posturing and well and and just even the yelling it's like all of them like i just said it like they're all yelling and screaming and the sound drowns out and the sound design and the mixing and she's not saying anything very silently she just gets she thinks of the sedative and she's like we're done here Mm -hmm. he passes out she takes his keys and let's get out of here so I do have a question for you, though. No psychologists or, psych- or uh, psychiatrists here, but I think you understand the psychological like stuff that's happening here a little better than I do. So because I find that even though she gets him to agree, you know, he says, I understand, I guess in my mind, I'm, I'm questioning like, and I'm going to guess this is because she has, A, she's done this once, she could effectively do it again, but she's put him she's humiliated him in a way i'm guessing is why this is binding because i find that i'm like why to to a degree it's kind of like what's holding him to this agreement Mm, nothing you know and i think if max were the main character we would see him like pushing against that boundary and you know it would be kind of like a cycle kind of thing but i think that she has demonstrated that she's you know she's punched the bully basically. Mm-hmm. And so she has demonstrated that she is not going to just accept his treatment of her, which she has up to this point, not because she approves of it or thinks she deserves it, but she just didn't feel that she had any recourse to fight back. Now she has demonstrated not only that she can fight back, but that she will. And that is going to give him a lot of pause before he starts picking at her. And, uh, you know, taking his anger out on her and and so on and so forth. So it's entirely possible that, like, it wouldn't be binding forever. But I definitely think that it would grant her at least a, you know, at least a temporary reprieve. Yeah, because I think my fear every time I watch it is, like, I mean, we have season three, so I know that this doesn't happen. But, like, that there might have been, like, a more intense version of what happens with Lucas earlier. Like, that he hit back and it just pissed him off. Mm-hmm. is he going to be that much more aggressive or like kind of a little bit vengeful probably but we cut away from that moment back to the buyers and nancy as they arrive at the cabin and surround will with spa- the space heaters and they light the fire meanwhile hopper and l arrive at hawkins lab and i really like that the show takes the time to pause here and give eleven the moment to sort of gulp you know, take mm-hmm. the deep breath, allowing us to realize and remember if we haven't already, because I didn't, I'll admit, I didn't think of this, that this is where she fought so hard to get away from. Mm-hmm. This is the first time she's been back. Mm-hmm. How much horror she endured there and what going back to close the gate means for her personally. And no, you know, and no one else, especially since it never comes up with any of the other characters, mm-hmm. not even here, not even with Hopper. Like he doesn't even seem to register that. And, you know, he breaks down the plan and, you know, that she save her strength. And when she doesn't respond and just sort of charges forward, he kind of rolls his eyes like teenagers, (laughs) which is cute. You know, I'm not mad about it, but it does mean that not 
one of the people there realizes what she's having to do. She looks up at the lab and you can hear the demodogs like making noise. It's like there's a lot of double meaning right there. Mm-hmm. So I like that even though the characters don't think of it, the show does. Yeah. And it allows us to as well. I mean, she hasn't talked a great deal about what went on with her at the lab. She literally doesn't have the words for it. And I don't think for a second, knowing what we know about Eleven, like, there's no way she'd object. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know. I mean, she's, I can do it. I can close mm-hmm. the gate. But I, I mean, and maybe she hasn't even considered what it means until they yeah. pull up to the lab. Yeah. Steve, meanwhile, comes to in the back of Billy's car. Oh, this poor baby. And he is a mess, yeah. dude. Like, Dustin has a great bedside manner, acting like the bard that he is, <laughs> you know, giving encouragement. Dare I say inspiration? While Lucas navigates ranger and max drives but steve freaks out and then everyone else proceeds to freak out and there's lots of yelling smashing of a mailbox careening off the road all that fun stuff and at the cabin everyone is sweating profusely while will stirs and starts screaming joyce enraged thinking about bob cranks up the heaters to full blast despite jonathan's objections it's a tiny moment but i absolutely love the just kind of acting moment when jonathan begs Joyce to stop because you know he thinks that Will is dying and then he can't look anymore and he turns around and just like collapses into Nancy's arms that's really a beautiful thing like a really good moment of vulnerability and you know Jonathan as a character has been he faces things you know I mean when he thought that Will was dead he proceeded with plans for a funeral even though he didn't want to face, you know, in his mind that Will was dead. But he went ahead anyway. And I don't see this in any way as him turning his back on Will or even on the situation, but just having this moment of, like, emotional vulnerability and knowing that he can go to Nancy and that she will hold him. And then she does. She doesn't even hesitate. She just gathers him right up and is a kind of a a safe place for him to land is really really beautiful and then even like a a few minutes later they're holding hands Mm -hmm. that emotional intimacy is a really great touch max skids billy's (laughs) car to a hold at merrill's farm mike mike come i missed this before mike compliments her from the back seat Mm. which i think gets overlooked a bit they all get out of the car, they unload the gear from the trunk while Steve tries to rally despite his injuries and finally relents when Dustin presents him with a pack of gear for him too, complete with the spiky bat. Mm-hmm. Dustin kinda says the magic words. A party member requires assistance and it is our duty to provide that assistance. He goes on to sort of repeat Steve's own words back to him. You promised Nance that you'd keep us safe, so keep us safe. Right. And knowing what we know about Steve at this point, how could he not go along with it? Like, I mean, injuries notwithstanding. I mean, his injuries are gone by the time he gets out of the car, pretty much. They, I mean, they leave some of the makeup there, yeah. but he's not acting the way that yeah. he was before. Yeah. In the lab, Hopper and Elle run into a wounded Dr. Owens, and Hop patches him up as best he can, while also proposing... That since Elle is about to save them all, Owens helps her out once all this is over. Joyce and Jonathan argue over turning off the heaters, and Will's voice changes. One hand gets loose, and Joyce goes to strap it back down, but Will starts choking her. At the lab, Hopper goes ahead of Elle, approaching the control room, just as Steve and the kids set the hub on fire, drawing them away. Just like Mike said they would. 
Hopper and Elle would have had a much harder time here if not for the distraction. Uh, yeah. Just like Hop and Joyce would have had a hard time mm-hmm. if, you know, Elle hadn't killed all the people mm-hmm. in season one and drawn the Demogorgon. But context, it's different. Yeah. I think that the show across all seasons places a pretty high value on teamwork. And I think the Duffers like to explore that in each season finale. Yeah, I also think that there's a a parallel to be made to Lord of the Rings. Uh, The only reason that Frodo and Sam were able to make it to Mount Doom is because the Eye of Sauron was fixed on the gate because of Aragorn. And they knew that, you know, they knew, A, that it was hopeless, and B, that that was the only way you know, to keep his attention away from Frodo and Sam, because he would have sensed the ring in Mordor if they hadn't made that distraction. And I think that in sci-fi fantasy literature at large, teamwork, friendship, all types of love being what saves the world is kind of, it's kind of a core tenant. And I mean that in a great way. So I just think that this is a way of manifesting that the full range of scale like mm-hmm. you know you have this the big broad scale of like kill the big bad you need this to happen so right. blah 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 but then you've got all the, like the little dynamics happening within each group too mm-hmm. like you know that we've been analyzing so mm-hmm. back in the cabin will continue to choke joyce even though even with jonathan trying to pull pry him off of her nancy grabs a searing hot poker from the fireplace and jabs will with it which shocks him into letting go and joyce screams get out of my son valid the black smoky stuff essence of the mind flare escapes from Will out of the cabin altogether. And Nancy chases after it, watching it disappear while Joyce and Jonathan revive Will. And Hopper and Elle get a good look at the gate just as Jonathan radios hopped with confirmation. Close it. Elle starts to do just that. And we see the mind flare inside it. It kind of raises its head like it's seeing her for the first time. Because Elle is his focal point next season yeah so i like i do think that this is actually set up that has some pretty nice payoff in the tunnels mike gets caught and steve hustles back to cut him loose but just then dart appears Mm. dustin winds up pulling an 11 here he throws his hands out protectively in front of the rest of the group and this is the payoff i've been rattling on about all season with these two you know, he apologizes for the storm cellar it's silly but really it's not that different from hopper's apology (laughs) Dustin having the same kind of arrogance as someone who thinks that they can, like, bring home a bear cub or a lion cub or any other, like, extremely wild, like, not domesticated animal and just coexist peacefully with it as if it were a cat or a dog. As a person who loves animals, I understand that urge, like, oh, cool animal. I like animals. Let's be friends. You as a human, with proper training, etc., etc., if you're a zookeeper, whatever, whatever, you can establish relationships with lions and tigers and bears, am I, within certain boundaries. You know, they will understand you as the person who brings the food, so they don't attack you on sight. But that's quite different from the bond that I have with Renji the cat. And even the bond that I have with Renji the cat has its limits. He's an animal. He's not a person. So I actually think it's really interesting and really cool. I struggle with with the dart thing a lot because he eats a cat and I'm a cat and dog and horse and hamster person. But currently in my life, I have cats. So it, it's just it's actually really upsetting to me. But I don't blame dart. Dustin was being very foolish, but I don't blame him and i think it's cool that they get to have this moment of like detente 
But Dustin has learned his lesson and he has learned that like, no, I can't be friends with this animal. But his instincts to not be just like, it's a monster, kill it with fire, actually does have some... Some merit because... It helps. Dart would have totally attacked them if not for Dustin's relationship with him. So yeah. Elle, meanwhile, recalls Kali's training. We even get some cutaways to the lost sister and watch Elle channel the dark, her dark memories. I was surprised watching it. I was so, I was like, I even started, while I was taking my notes, I was like, well, she recalls her dark memories first. Mm -hmm. And I was so sure that we were going to see her pivot to thinking about positive stuff, like times that she had used her powers for good. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what I was doing was I was sort of repeating my expectation was that it was going to be a repeat of what happened at the end of the lost sister where she was thinking over her memories from season one with the boys and with hop and everything and i think it's it's not here it's she it's just channel your anger yeah and like i get it i'm not mad about it but i it would have been especially since then they do the whole like all the lights flare that made me think of monsters inc which then made me think of the laughs are more powerful than screams that joy is more powerful than fear Mm -hmm. and i would have liked to have seen that here i don't know that it would have been feasible so i'm not like oh well they should have i just was surprised that they didn't i guess i'm a little conflicted in my reading of her like internal process in that scene because i think her remembering the speech from brenner like you have a wound and if you don't heal it it will kill you I think she is reaching for a kind of healing, even though that speech didn't come from Brenner, it came from Kali. There's a line from The Last Unicorn, it's a, it's a rare man who's uh, mistaken for what he truly is. And I think that Kali was right, but in a way that she didn't realize. From Kali's perspective, healing comes from killing those who have wronged you. But from Elle's perspective, healing comes from protecting those that you love. When she goes back to Hawkins, she is doing more to heal her wound than she had been when she was with Kali. So I think that, like, in closing the gate, she's also healing her wound. I don't think fully, but I think partly. But I also think that I'm bringing a lot of, like, Joseph Campbell heroine's journey and, you know, a whole lot of other type analysis to it that a i don't know and b if i really like step back and think about it it doesn't seem likely i don't know I think, um, no i think you're onto something because they they have those cutaways in there i think yeah. that is what they're trying to say but yeah i but i don't know i don't know that i fully buy it i don't know that they went far enough to establish that this is what the intention is or this is what the you know this is the vibe like some cutaways like to when she found will in the astral plane last season might have been might have been nice like not just seeing how it affected her but how it's affected other people yeah back in the tunnels steve hoists them all out of the out back the way they came until it's just he and dustin left but when all the demo dogs come running they don't attack they just run right past headed back to the lab and then that's when mike knows Hopper looks away from the gate closing, opening fire on the demodogs as they swarm in. And Elle just keeps working. The circles under her eyes get darker. Her nosebleed gets worse and worse. And she keeps remembering all the darkest stuff. And her irises are bloody again. Mm-hmm. And I love the moment where her other hand shoots out. Yeah. And she's l- she rises off the ground, screaming as the mind flayer's tendrils spill out of the gate. And that's when, that's when the lights flare all across Hawkins. Like, light triumphing over dark, I think, is what they were probably going for. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and there's light coming from her hands when the shadow monster's tendrils reach her. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like, dispersed by this wall of light. And the gate closes. The demodogs fall. There were a lot of dead demodogs that fell. Mm-hmm. And Hopper holds Eleven and tells her, you did so good, kid. You mm. did so good. And he just holds her, just like Joyce did. Mm-hmm. One month later, Hawkins' lab is shut down and Murray watches the place empty out. Very cheerful. <laughs> we get Barb's funeral. Hopper goes to meet Owens at the bar, where Owens gives him a birth certificate for Eleven. I was so relieved. I I was so surprised to see yeah. how relieved I was when Owens was there. I was like, yay, you're not dead. <laughs> he says that uh, Eleven's got about a year to stay hidden, but maybe one night can be an exception. We get the Bob Newby superhero drawing. Which I love. I was like, thank you, Will. When Will and Joyce are dancing, they're like rocking back and forth on their feet, but they're also rocking their arms a lot. When I started learning ballroom dance, I learned as a follower. So like somebody was leading me. Grammy asked me to dance with her, but she wanted me to lead, which I had never done before. So when I was like, as I was figuring out the steps, I started doing the like seesaw arms and very, you know, in very good humor. She was like, hey, cut that out. Just like with the Halloween costumes, Karen takes photos of Mike while Lucas practices asking Max to dance. I mean, he doesn't say... Uh, does he say Max, by I don't think so. Okay. But we know that's who it's for. Oh, yeah. Max and Billy share a look as Susan does Max's hair. And I'm not sure how to read that exchange. It's possibly going to sound like I'm giving Billy a lot of credit here. I'm not. I think that Billy is sad because he sees that Max and her mom have this connection. Oh. That- obviously he and his dad don't have and that he probably hasn't felt in his life since his mom died Mm -hmm. you know the look is like you're still under contract and he's like yeah yeah i know at the same time like i still i still don't feel bad for billy because billy has chosen how to be with max he doesn't have any control over the dynamic between himself and his father but he does have at least some control over you know repeating patterns but but no, he does not have to treat Max like that. No. He chose to. And so, like, yes, he's sad. I just don't feel bad for him. At Dustin's, Muse gets a stocking, and Dustin's mom has a new kitten. The doorbell rings, and she says, that's your ride. And he does. Steve gives him the ride to the snowball and continues to, you know, with the whole, you don't care. Which is the worst advice. Is the worst advice. <laughs> And he, but he does follow by telling Dustin that he looks great, yes. which I think he does. I think he looks adorable. Yeah. This is another definitely written by a dude. Didn't like there was no lady script doctor that was either present or paid attention to because this is very much like teenage girls be bitches. Oh, everything that follows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but even the rest of his friends give him shit about his hair. Which, again, is silly. Like, it's... Mr. Clark is, like, looking very snazzy tonight. Yeah. Thank you, my lord. I love that. <laughs> I love that he calls Mr. Clark my lord. I love it. But before before we get to them, though, in the car, Steve sees Nancy through the doors, and she's... Because she's serving punch, and <laughs> the, you know, you don't care advice is clearly BS for him, too. Because mm-hmm. he still obviously does care and then yeah that's when dustin goes into the gym and he says a coolish hello to nancy as he walks by hey nance (laughs) and she meanwhile shares a warm look with jonathan who's taking pictures which is very cute and then yeah that's when the other the mike 
Lucas, Max, and Will. I don't know if Will actually contributes to the, like, you look ridiculous, but they're like, what'd you do to your hair? I don't know. I mean, it's out there, but I, I like it. It's very 80s. Yeah. But that's when a slow dance starts, and Lucas tries to ask Max to dance, but she has to help him out. Girl walks up to Will. She calls him zombie boy, but asks him to dance, which makes him stammer. With encouragement from Mike, takes a while to accept. That's, yeah, that's when Dustin approaches Stacy. So I don't have a lot of, like, firsthand experience to use as con- comparison or contrast for what happens here, but it does seem like what I've seen a lot in different television shows. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been to a number of dances in my time. Um, school dances. And unlike with social dancing, when you're a grown-up, asking someone to dance at a school dance is like a formal overture. And, like, it means something. So if Dustin is trying to go into this dance, like, and approach girls as if they don't already know him, and be like, big purr. <laughs> um, shall we? Shall we? It's not going to work because they already know him. And he's not, like, whether he realizes it or not, he's not necessarily coming from a very authentic place. He's trying to knock him dead kind of thing. And, like, I don't judge Dustin for wanting to, like, look sharp and be impressive. But acting like these girls are stupid or bitchy, you know, how I think that scene probably would have played out like IRL is he would have walked up and been like shall we and she would have been like oh um I um I'm getting some punch yes my punch yes and then like scurried away I think it's a bit of a yes and because I think that those kinds of girls do exist Mm -hmm. but I think my issue with this whole sequence is that it's it's make it seems to almost like make the statement that that's like all the girls are at this age like Nancy even says that yeah and I'm like that's not really fair are Elle and, and Max like that? No. There are girls like Susie at Hawkins Middle School. Like, mm-hmm. those girls are there, but Dustin's not approaching them. Right. But yeah, that it's still, it's still hard to watch just because Dustin is upset by it. And Nancy finds him crying. Mm-hmm. Over by himself. And I think partly, too, that... You know, this is stuff that, like, you, we, I've talked about it a little bit in terms of, like, Lucas and Max and Mike over the course of the season. You talked about it last season with Lucas and Mike and Elle. How this, because being, being a kid is hard. Like, you're going through so much so frequently all of the time. And I think Dustin is feeling, like, just the seismic shifts happening in their group. And, like, they're, they're not bad, but I think it's making him a little sad. And so, you know, it's cute to me that Nancy does come and dance with him. Mm-hmm. I do like that. Mm-hmm. I don't like what she says. I would have rather have had Nancy say something like, don't waste your time on, on someone who doesn't see how cool you are. Like, yeah. even something like that would have been better. Yeah. Like, why do we have to make it? Well, girls, just all girls this age are dumb. Yeah. Like, wh- why? What was the point of that? There, There isn't one. Them dancing together, like, it's kind of been teased at through the whole second season that, like, Dustin has a little bit of an innocent crush on Nancy. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things, like, that he and Steve seem to have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that, like, you know, their first scene together in the first mm-hmm. season, you know, was her shutting the door on yeah. him. And then to have her here say, of all my brother's friends, you're my favorite. And have them have this cute little moment. It's just really cute. Yeah, I like that. Outside the school, Hopper joins Joyce, where she's parked, giving Will a few feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they share another cigarette. And they talk about 
Bob and Sarah without saying either name out loud. Without going into too much, I will just say that I really like how understanding and how supportive Hopper feels in this moment. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't feel strictly romantic to me. It really just feels like he's there. Yeah, to, he's to, just there for her. Yeah. A new song starts inside. Elle appears. She is so cute. That dress is very, quote-unquote, 80s does 40s, because it's it's very influenced by, like, 40s-era fashion, but it's it's incredibly 80s. I, I just like that as, like, a fashion history note. It's it's not not color-coordinated with Mike, with what Mike's wearing. Yes. And they get to dance. Nancy and Dustin keep dancing. Will keeps dancing with the same girl he's with. Max kisses Lucas. Mike and Eleven get their long overdue kiss. And pretty much that's where we end. It does the, the slow you know, pull back, the whole building tilts upside down. And of course, this is all the new song is, of course, I'll be watching you. Ultimately, I like the ending overall. But, you know, I I like that they were trying to set up some sort of an everyone lives heavily ever after kind of vibe. I do actually find that I'm a little bit bothered by the kissing. I'm a person who like, I love romance. I often joke that like, every movie should have more kissing. But teenage actors and I'm not I don't want to say that they have like no agency or or anything like that but it is uncomfortable for me to watch those actors kiss because I think that despite them giving it their best effort I can see that the actors are uncomfortable and I'm I'm not okay with that it doesn't feel organic the when they're hugging each other and they're just like you know their foreheads are together like that all feels very very natural Apparently, Sadie Sink was very, very nervous. Kayla McLaughlin says that he had, that was his first kiss. Mm. Um, I get the impression, I don't think they ever say as much that it was Sink's as well, but I, that's my impression. Apparently, her nerves were very obvious. I think she was just very nervous because she knew that, and apparently, Brown was sort of teasing her about it before because Mike and Eleven's kiss was in the script, Lucas and Max's was not. And so they showed up on, like, I, th- I think Sadie Sink said that she and Noah Schnapp showed up to, like, look at the set and just come check it out. And again, this is all in the Beyond, Str- I'm not, like, I'm paraphrasing, but it's all yeah. in Beyond Stranger Things. They showed up and the Duffers were there and one of them said, you know, are you, you know, are you ready, you know, for yours? And she freaked out. She was like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't have a kiss in this scene. Like, I've, I've been very thorough. Like, and apparently her overreaction he says in this in this in the episode of Beyond Stranger Things, he's like, "Well, then I had to make you do it then." Oh no, no, that's that's really upsetting. When Finn Wolfhard and Millie Bobby Brown did their kiss, apparently, like everyone clapped, like all the extras clapped, and they were like, "Why are you do-? like it's it's calling attention to how much attention they're all p- paying to them?" Apparently, Wolfhard and Brown like got theirs done in like like a couple of takes, but then. McLaughlin and Sink, they had to do it over and over and over again because of the camera operator. It was like they kept, like the timing kept being weird. And like the, the steady cam operator was like, now, like he was cueing them because he could tell they were struggling and they kept missing McLaughlin's reaction. So they had to do it like eight times. So it was, and you can, and even knowing that, like I could tell from the way it's cut that they had to splice together multiple takes. This is just worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So I really have a, a lot of, issues with not so much the what happens but how it was brought about and i don't think you needed it she could have given him a kiss on the cheek it would have been just as sweet you know it probably would have calmed both his nerves and her nerves it would have been 
quite possibly easier to film like mm-hmm. or they could just hug i really 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 have a problem with forcing your actors to do things that they are uncomfortable with no matter what their ages are um you know if it was me a 37 year old woman and i suddenly decided i wanted to be an actor and there was even a kissing scene even if it was just like a little like you know a little like peck and i was genuinely sincerely uncomfortable with it and it wasn't in the scene wasn't in the script i don't understand why it's necessary to force me to do it and if it's not necessary to force me to do it when i'm 37 it really should not be necessary or even acceptable to force a teenager to do it and i that's that's a lot to unpack but i would really just rather throw the whole suitcase away like you know even if you want to be generous and say it's not the actual act of of having to do a kiss actually bothers her even if it was the fact of like i'm not prepared for it Mm -hmm. that's a huge part of an actor's process Mm -hmm. so it may have been that she was like i'm not prepared i don't know what's happening there's a lot of because again because brown had been giving her a hard time like had been teasing her about it that's not as as bad as what ended up happening but it's like because she was already feeling nervous, you know, not being an actor, I like to know ahead of time what I'm going to be asked to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there are, there are a lot of actors who thrive on improv and there are actors who like, no, I need to know what the script says. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have worked with both. There's so much vulnerability that's included in that. Every actor is different and there are different schools of thought, even within schools of thought. So even if she alone had been given time to prepare, mm-hmm. it may have affected her 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 comfort level with it yeah and we'll never know because she was robbed of that experience yeah and i don't understand like even taking aside everything you just said addition in addition to that there's the fact of like you would have gotten a better performance from all of them because they would have been more comfortable yeah yeah and it's just the more you dig into how that stuff was filmed it gets more and more uncomfortable yeah obviously there's been a whole third season there's a fourth on the way We've seen lots of content with those actors. They all still are friends. They all seem very naturally comfortable with one another. That's kind of my one, like, okay. At least yeah. it didn't affect their their actual factual real-life relationships with one another. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's at least a silver lining. Mm-hmm. And it's just a bummer because we heard about the snowball at the end of season one, and it was something we all really wanted to see. We got to see it, and now it's just messy. Yeah. But at the same time character wise i guess everyone's kind of got their happily ever after except for mm-hmm. the fact that the mind flayer is watching them and that's the season finale of season two so final thoughts i think i always forget how much i really enjoy the season two finale like i have it in my head like oh yeah it's it's a really great season finale there's a lot of things about it that i enjoy but I think I forget just how into it I get every time I watch it. And I mean, there were small details that I forgot. Like, as we were watching it, I made a joke and you were like, that is about to happen. (laughs) So I think it's one of those episodes of TV that can stand up to multiple rewatches without it being like, yeah, okay, you know, let's get to the good shit, that kind of thing is good yeah (laughs) my you want my general impression is good yeah i remember knowing that we were getting to the end of the episode 
and just naturally like you know we're wrapping towards the conclusion Mm because there's a lot at the end that isn't conflict related and we're wrapping up and i was like i don't want it to be over yet because i don't know that they had confirmed a season three so no they didn't and then there was a big gap it was like well clearly they could go on Mm -hmm. you know they they established that the mind flayer is still there that it's still aware but ultimately you could have stopped the show there which is why i say if you were going to end after one or two Two is where I think you should have stopped it. Because even though, like, I don't love where they leave Steve, you get the impression that, like, he's going to be okay. Yeah, he's going to move on. He's got this new bond with Dustin. That's clearly going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. I really liked seeing the characters just kind of exist in the world for their own sake. Mm -hmm. I tend to like second installments that do that. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I've always liked Chamber of Secrets. It's one of the reasons I like The Two Towers. And I've, I have I think I've heard in other people talking about why they don't like season two. Sometimes when they're saying, I just didn't enjoy the slower burn. I didn't enjoy this. I preferred the way that they approached the, the, the plot and the character decisions. That's not something that I can argue with. That's just personal preference. Mm-hmm. So for what it's worth, I think I prefer the vibe of season two. Mm-hmm. It's a little less anxious, I think. Mm-hmm. Season one is more of a mystery. You're still waiting on information on, like, what actually, on answers up until the finale. Mm -hmm. Season two does not work that way. Yeah. With season two, naturally, because you already know the world, you already know the characters, you already come in with a lot of contextualized knowledge. That's the same with any sequel. Mm -hmm. The difference, though, is that they they don't hide information from the characters for that long. Right. Elle is on a bit of a mystery hunt, but... Mm -hmm. Even that gets found out pretty quickly. Yeah. There's just not a lot that you're left to figure out. So it becomes more conflict-driven than mystery-driven. Or the the conflict is not mystery-driven. It's like man versus beast or whatever instead of, you know, mystery. I, I like the addition of Max and Billy. I cannot imagine Stranger Things without Max. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine where Elle would be as a person without the arc that she went on Mm -hmm. and i'm so glad that they let that bond with dustin become a thing because it's it's easily one of the best parts of the show yeah and i do think that sometimes those elements get forgotten Mm -hmm. when people write off the second season yeah and like i said at the the very beginning of this season it's about dealing with the repercussions of the first season Mm -hmm. and so to some degree that's kind of why i don't mind such a like happily ever after style ending Mm -hmm. like in in concept if not in execution right because i think all these characters deserve it they do all deserve it but this was that much more of a responsible way to end the season if you don't know that you're gonna get more But I also remember thinking, like, I love this world. I love these dynamics. I want more. Yeah. And we got more. And we got more. And we have more yet to come. Mm Mm-hmm. So my hope with with this podcast is that for anyone listening who maybe didn't love season two as much when we started, that maybe this has helped, you know, increase the appreciation. And if you're like me and Heidi and you actually really love this season or at least just really enjoy it and like it, that this has been validating. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know even just talking, you know, to mm-hmm. you about it has been validating. Like, yeah. to look at it critically. And season two is not without its problems. I hate that Bob dies. Yeah. I hate that Bob dies. And, you know, this ending with the the snowball stuff is messy. I I don't like the, the Max and Eleven thing. But those, to me, don't actually interfere with my overall. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Sure. So, all in all, season two rocks. Yeah. 
So with that said, that's going to conclude our contemplations on Chapter 9, The Gate, and Season 2 of Stranger Things. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, links in the show notes. We're going to be back with Season 3 at some point. Yeah. Not sure when yet. <laughs> but this has been fun. Thank you for listening. Over and out. up and is like i'm intimidating and steve is like not really <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad i amuse you um and and today we will together be discussing chapter nine the gate <laughs> <laughs> i always think the chapter nine is the mind flare yeah i actually had a lot of trouble with that with the mind flare okay one more time we did it! Woohoo!